Hi, and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, at the Spectator Building. Today, I'm joined by uh, one of the most prolific men I know, both in comedy but also in the commentating commentariat world, Andrew Doyle. Thank you so much, Andrew, for um, uh, coming here uh, to Westminster to chat with me. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, so, I don't really know how you you have the capacity to do so much but as well as your tv show uh free speech nation you've also written uh, uh free speech and why it matters um as well as two books you're the man behind titania mcgrath yeah i pronounced it correctly yeah fantastic <laughs> and uh, uh she's published two books and and i i uh, went to see her show on, on uh uh, in the West End at Leicester Square Theatre. I've seen you do stand-up. You host the um, uh, comedy show at uh, the Brick Lane. Is yeah. it Brick Lane? No, it's, uh, it's Bethnal, Bethnal Green. Green. Comedy Unleashed, yeah. Comedy Unleashed. Yeah. I don't know how you have the time for it all. So with that in mind, thank you so much for No, uh, it's my, absolutely my pleasure. No, it's nice. Um, so the, the sort of first thing I want to uh, speak to you about is, is free speech. Yes. Um, not only because you wrote the, you published this book last year on free speech, um, but it seems to me that... Um, as the kind of lens of the cultural discourse continues to move, whether it was BLM or trans or COVID and all these different things, this month, particularly with yeah. both Elon Musk uh, buying Twitter and also Biden launching their, quote, Ministry of Truth, it seems like free speech is, a, is now really at the centre of, um, uh, of the discourse, both at the the top level, as I've just said, and and also, you know, seeing sort of Twitter go wild on on these yeah. two things. We've probably reached the, the the point, haven't we, where people are starting to realise that we do have to defend this principle again. You know, I mean, that, that was the reason I wrote the book is that I felt that I'm I was aware that you have to defend free speech in every successive generation. This isn't something that you win the fight and it's there forevermore. And particularly at the moment, it feels like it's in kind of a parlous state. And I think. Um, in this country, you know, with the online safety bill that the Conservatives are trying to push through, that that which will only make matters worse, I have absolutely no doubt. And then, as you say, the situation with Twitter, although this development with Elon Musk is really fascinating, isn't it? I mean, this could this could change the game. Um, and a lot of people are speculating about, you know, what will be revealed by the time Musk is installed, about the, the censorship practices within Twitter, uh, because it's so... Uh, sort of layered in in mystery, you know, because they're just not a transparent company. Even the even the uh, their terms of service are not transparent. They have these vague, nebulous ideas. You get banned, and you don't know why. You apply to find out why you got banned, and they send you automated responses saying you've been banned because you've broken our terms of service. And you say what terms of service, and they send you the same message back. And that it, it's all Kafka esque. It's like the trial. In the trial, he is. He has done something wrong, but no one will tell him what he's done wrong. No one will tell him what crime he's committed. And uh, it's it's very much like that. So I think all the matters seem to be coming to a head at the moment, yeah. which is good because I'm, I'm glad that people are taking more of an interest in it. And they've started to realise that big tech censorship is a serious threat to liberty. Uh, and, and you'll notice that old mantra, you know, Twitter is a private company. They can do whatever they want in relation to censorship. Those same people aren't saying that anymore because now they see Elon Musk in charge. They think, well... What they really meant when they said Twitter is a private company and can do what it wants is, oh, well, Twitter is censoring the people I don't like, so that's fine. Mm. And that that might now change. Who knows? 
I, w- I was personally gutted to find out I wasn't shadow banned because ah. it implies I'm not saying anything interesting or provocative enough. No, or oh, you might be and you might not know. I don't. I, I, you don't show up in those things where they hide the replies. That's one of their, their oh, techniques. No, no you oh, don't. I see. But you, so you sound excited then about about master taking well, over. I'm not that excited insofar as it probably won't do that much. But I, I'm I've enjoyed the absolute meltdown from people on the identitarian left and the way in which they have completely overreacted to this news. Um, and that's been very funny. I mean, they're talking, people are actually saying things like this is the rise of the new Third Reich and mm. uh, with Elon Musk in charge, uh, white supremacists will reign Twitter. Oh, absolutely insane stuff. And you do hope that one day these people will look back at the things they've written and think, I must have gone mad. I must have said something. But that capacity for hysteria is something that I've been surprised over the last, ever since Brexit, really. It's the sheer mania that people are capable of whipping themselves up into on social media. And I'm talking about prominent commentators and, and you know, uh, politicians and celebrities and all these people, figures of authority, and they just get sucked in mm. to this hysteria, this this nonsense world. The J.K. Rowling thing is a perfect example. J.K. Rowling, who has never said anything transphobic, never written anything transphobic, uh, has only ever uh, defended trans rights, and um, but is also now concerned about women's rights as well. And that has somehow translated in many mainstream media outlets to she's a transphobe or she says transphobic things it's like this this is this is a we are we are entering into periods of hysteria when that kind of thing happens when a lie when a fiction is embraced by all sorts of people and and you know whenever you ask them for evidence of their claims they can't produce them but they don't revise their views on that basis they stick with those views it's called belief perseverance you know where you stick with a view even once it's been disproved um, and that's so common now. And I don't understand it because if, as has happened to me, if, if someone points out that I'm factually wrong about something, I'm grateful because it means I'm not going to make a fool of myself anymore and I can correct the record and, and move on. But that doesn't seem to be... Well, for a lot of people, that's really tricky because if, you've, if, if their identity is, let's say, being a trans activist sure. and, and these things pierce the, the underlying understanding of their, their life, yeah. then for them to change would mean changing everything about life it's hard perhaps yeah, yeah no i mean uh, peter bogosian and james Lindsay wrote a book called how to have impossible conversations yeah. which is about that and they talk they call them identity quakes um and i cite that in my book on free speech because i think that's exactly right the identity quake the idea of s- your whole worldview suddenly shifting underneath you and it's very uncomfortable it's what charles darwin experienced uh, when he when he was undertaking his work because of course it threatened his deeply held christian views um and that's quite. That to me is interesting. Philip Goss would be another a naturalist of the time, who couldn't cope with the the findings uh, of natural selection. He created this whole theory. He wrote a book called Omphalos, which is um, which means navel. And the theory he came up with was, well, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam would have had a navel, and navel only exists if you have a biological mother. And Adam didn't have a biological mother, and therefore what that is is that God is essentially um, introducing into his creation hints of a past that didn't exist. For instance, in the Garden of Eden, the trees would have had rings, which would have suggest age, but they were brand new. And so he came up with this really quite poetic and beautiful theory that God had deliberately not tricked people, but had, you know, introduced these elements that made it look like the world was older than it was. He was, in other words, trying to reconcile the truth of natural selection with his biblical faith. And he tried to find a way. He was widely ridiculed for it at the time. But I sort of understand, I feel for him 
because I understand what it must have done to him. Have you had any moments like that in your life? Yeah, of course. I think um, I was very attached to uh, when I was a teenager and I'd just come out. I was very attached to that sort of uh, gay identity, that world, um, you know, it, it, it mattered to me. But then, of course, that was at a time when being gay was not... Uh, most people weren't out you know so it's oh, certainly among my friendship groups most people weren't out um and in retrospect i think that was i was sub subordinating my own individuality to a group identity in a way that i don't think was very helpful or healthy um so yeah absolutely um, and that changed yeah like now i mean i've reached the point where i i mistrust whenever i like when i was 1920 if i saw the rainbow flag outside a building i would be like okay that's that's comforting i can go in there and you know i can hold someone's hand and i'm not going to be attacked or anything and th- there was a sense of that's great and i i liked that comforting feeling if i see that flag now i see it as a warning of, a, of an, an intolerance and a liberalism a tribalism uh something quite unpleasant uh, and that's a complete about face you know mm. And that flag is everywhere. I noticed actually just the, um, the other day driving past Pentonville Prison, where I used to work in Pentonville Prison mm. briefly, and, and there's a, a rainbow flag flying above it. Right. Actually, inside Pentonville Prison, there, uh, there were um, post Stonewall posters um, uh, all about um, the trans issue, and, and it was quite surprising uh, like how much that's grown and how much that's changed over, I guess, even, yeah, even I mean, not very long. The, 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 the rainbow flag as a symbol of gay pride is important in a context where to be gay is dangerous. So if you were flying that flag in Saudi Arabia, that would make sense to me. That would be great. Um, The corporations who fly the flag now, they weren't doing this before the equalisation of the age of consent. They weren't doing this before equal marriage. They weren't doing it before at a time of Section 28. They weren't doing it when there was any risk to do so. They're doing it now because it signals virtue and it's easy to do now because everyone's on board with gay rights now. So um, it is meaningless to me. Uh, and, and because Stonewall, it is my belief that Stonewall are the biggest threat to gay rights at the moment, and which is so sad because when they started out, they were really important. They were instrumental in not just legislative change, but cultural shifts, attitudes. Um, they did such important work. And now that they have decided that being gay doesn't mean being same-sex attracted, which is at the heart of being gay. Uh, they say it's the same gender attracted. They've revised the definition on their website and their promotional materials. They are promoting a new religion of gender identity ideologies. Um, they are saying that we all have an innate sexed soul. Um, and the consequence of that is that it, 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 it works against all of the achievements of gay rights, which was predicated on the recognition of biological reality because gay men are attracted to other men and gay women are attracted to other women. And that was what we were shamed for for so many years. And that's what we were, for atta- were attacked for. And now we have activists basically saying, if you're a lesbian and, you're not a, you, and you are excluding people with penises from your dating pool, you are a bigot. The head of Stonewall, Nancy Kelly, calls them sexual racists, right? So we are having, that's the old homophobic trope. You know, you just haven't found the right man yet saying that to a lesbian or, you know, or maybe there's something wrong with you. Maybe you've got trauma, maybe you've got psychological problems and that's why you you aren't open. These are just old. This is old school homophobia from the 80s and before being recycled in the name of progressivism. And I see that flag now as tied to that. So whereas that flag for me once represented gay pride, gay rights, equality, unity, 
it now represents division uh, and homophobia. Hmm. Wow. Well, um, uh, back to free speech, sorry. So, uh, I've digressed, haven't I? No, no, but it, uh, very <laughs> interesting, and, and, and it's not a, a topic I know too much about the Stonewall and, and trying to under... To be honest, when, when you start talking about what Stonewall now try and argue for, or, yeah. or the modern progressive uh, it, theories behind sexuality and gender, I get a bit confused because it, there's so much gymnastics going on, so much back and forth that yeah. it's, it's, I can sort of understand... The, you know the uh, the as you described your understanding of of uh, the original Stonewall movement, yeah. uh, yeah. gay rights, but this modern one is it's kind of hard to keep up with. Oh, it's unrecognisable. It doesn't support gay people. It's not there for gay people. Uh, it's it's there for people who believe in gender identity, which is fine. People have every right to believe in gender identity and to identify however they wish. I don't have any problem with that. Um, but that's not uh, that's not looking out for the interests of gay and lesbian people and a lot of trans people for whom biological sex is important because otherwise there would be no such thing as trans so you know this they are on a crusade um to promote a pseudo reality and they are doing very well at it although now there's a pushback you know lots of companies and corporations are pushing them out governmental departments and things and uh, i just wish the nhs could rid themselves of the influence of stonewall you know i saw, I saw a thing the other day about blood, the blood donation unit at the NHS talking about how they they treat their patients on the basis of how they identify, what sex they identify with, not their biological sex. Well, that matters in a medical context. Gender identity is irrelevant when it comes to medicine. Uh, so where is that pushback coming from? Because from my experience with institutions, uh, like I walked past Islington Town Hall the other day and there was a rainbow flag as right. well. I don't see the pushback. I see it being no. fully embraced by the institution. And maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just seeing the pushback because I associate with people who are pushing back and maybe <laughs> we are in the minority. Yeah, sure. But, but you know, you have had things like um, the government advise their various departments to, to rid themselves of Stonewall. You've got um, um, also off, Ofcom, Channel 4, various bodies divorcing themselves from the Stonewall Diversity Champions scheme. Um, there is more, more, there's the Stephen Nolan series on BBC Sounds, which was very, very critical of Stonewall and its influence in the BBC. Um, it's so embedded in the BBC, though, I don't know how they would now uh, extricate themselves from it. But there is a pushback, and I think ultimately it, w- it will be successful, um, but it's going to take some time, I think. Yeah. Um, so uh, in this book, uh, mm. I think for people who who are new to the kind of the history of free speech philosophy, this is a great starting point. And you ref- refer back to uh, Mill and Milton, and um, w- uh, you you say in the book the the best argument in favour of restricting speech is that of incitement. Yeah. And so um, I guess my question is to you uh, to you is. What are your lines on free speech? Where would you say that's too far? When, what is not acceptable to you in terms of free speech? Um, okay, I would say, well, I am, I think, a free speech absolutist insofar as on... It, when it comes to... Uh, I mean, I draw a distinction in the book, and I'm talking about the way in which speech can be used as a mechanism to commit a crime. But the problem there is not speech in of itself. So, for instance, perjury espionage, blackmail, libel, you know, these are all ways in which you have uh, committed a crime uh, and the crime has been committed via speech. But for, but for me to say, I don't think you should have the right to blackmail someone, mm. that, that doesn't mean I, that's an anti-free speech stance. It's completely compatible with a free speech stance. So we have to be clear about what we mean by, by free speech. 
I think anyone should be able to say whatever they want, so long as it does not infringe on the rights of others very directly and, and thereby break the law. If you're talking about incitement, I would like to see a debate about that because the potential for words to lead to violence is very, very small. And you would have to prove to me that there is that causality. And even where it were to be proven, we would still have to have a discussion about whether that necessarily means we should limit speech. Now, in America, they have the Brandenburg test where they will say, you know, incitement to violence can only be proven if there was a a sense that it was an imminent danger. So, for instance, an, an example would be a demagogue standing in a crowd. And I mentioned this example in the book. And he's surrounded by his followers and he points to someone and says, kill him now. And he's whipped them up into a frenzy and he says, kill that person. That would be a very clear case of an imminent, that would that would meet the Brandenburg test of incitement to violence. Um, but the trouble is that that concept of incitement is used to, as a pretext to silence forms of speech. They will say, for instance, that Boris Johnson using phrases like the surrender bill or, or talking about betrayal when it comes to the parliament parliament's reaction to Brexit that that is inciting violence, right? What they're talking about is robust political language. And it's very dangerous to start eliding that with, you know, the tall trees broadcast during the Rwandan genocide, you know, and this is what people are doing. They will invoke Joe Cox and say that this came about because because of words. They will say, you know, this happened with the killing of David Amos. All of a sudden we have this conversation in Parliament about uh trolls online and about how we in other words it became a pretext to censor speech but there was there was no suggestion that this had anything to do with with trolls online in fact it definitely didn't Mm. so you know this so i i would say when it comes to limits on free speech no i I think on balance i think it is safe like so when in a free society there is going to be some horrible people who say really really horrible things and the question shouldn't be, do we approve of what that person has to say? Do I approve of the man standing at Speaker's Corner screaming that homosexuals should be killed? No, I don't approve of that. I actually take it quite personally. Um, but the question isn't about whether I endorse the speech that is being uttered. The question is, what would I rather have? Would I rather have a society where that guy gets to say what he wants? Or would I rather have a society in which we empower the state to decide on the acceptable parameters of speech, because what you're doing is you're setting a dangerous precedent. That, to me, I know enough about history to know that that never leads to good things. So I think that's the question we you, people need to ask themselves when it comes to free speech. Well, then you'll be very worried to, uh, when you see, I don't know if you saw Obama last week, when he announced this, uh, what's it called again? It's called the Disinformation Governance Board, or yeah, yeah. He, he's talking about fi- uh, fighting disinformation on social media. He, he talks about how uh, the um, these big tech companies are taking on responsibility to monitor speech, hate speech, and incitement to violence. But then he goes on to say, but that's not enough. Yeah, And that is quite worrying, because if... He said that, he said that's not enough. Yeah. And right. if, if, if that... If, if the me if you can justify anything if you if if it's deemed to be uh um morally uh, you know yeah desirable end um so if, if obama says who's gonna who's gonna control what and and that is i i see that as a pushback against musk's uh takeover yes yeah, i mean that's scary um it feels like a stage has been skipped doesn't it it's like they've it is taken now as axiomatic 
that speech leads to violence or that speech can be a form of violence. And that's why that, that, that'll be what that is based on. The, the desire to censor disinformation is based on a mistrust of the public and a mistrust of the marketplace of ideas and the way in which bad ideas are traditionally resolved, which is through better ideas uh, and through argument and exposure through criticism and ridicule or whatever you like, uh, even protest. And um, that, I think, is the, the, the problem here is they are taking as read something which isn't true. Um, and, and there's all sorts of ways in which that can be exploited. If a government is saying they're going to clamp down on disinformation, well, they're the ones who are going to get to decide what constitutes disinformation. And that could be something that is critical of the government. You know, I think it's a, a horrendous idea, particularly in America, given their First Amendment. You would expect this not to, not to have happened. Yeah. So if you were, let's say, Musk now, as yeah. a, and he, I think, describes as a free speech absolutist, as you do. Yeah. How do you regulate Twitter? What would you do there if you were walking into the office there? What, what would you do to what change would, things? Firstly, I would, um, I would, yeah, I would make it a free speech platform. The, the reason why you have a block function on Twitter is that it protects the free speech on the platform, weirdly. It's the, it's, it's, it means that when I see something that I find horrific on Twitter, I can block that person. I never have to see it again. Mm. And that's what I do. Um, and that means that Twitter and the authorities at Twitter don't have to get involved in my experience of the platform. They don't have to intervene and decide on my behalf what is good for me to see and what is bad for me to see because I've done it myself. That's what it's for. Uh, you can curate your own experience on social media. It's, it, it, the function is there. And I think it should be used. Um, and then you get the really stupid argument that blocking someone on Twitter is encroaching on their free speech which only really genuinely stupid people say so we don't even have to worry about that um <laughs> but you know i mean I, I do address it but you know it's so obvious why that's not true um but the yeah so i i would say what he should do is is well you know disband the trust and safety council firstly because they have a really scary name why would you call them the <laughs> trust and safety council i mean they sound like you know an orwellian nightmare it sounds it's ridiculous so get rid of that because you've got this group of academics from around the world who are telling twitter advising twitter on what speech they should allow and obviously that's going to tie in with their own ideological inclinations this is why twitter routinely ban gender critical feminists because of their opinion some people have been banned for even quoting debates on the gender recognition act that go on in parliament so you can be thrown off the platform for uh quoting what's said in a parliamentary debate that's not good for democracy so you know get rid of that have some terms of service that are really really clear and obviously it is a private company if elon musk's running it, it's a private company if he wants to say i'm going to run a platform where we don't have homophobic racist sexist speech that's up to him but he has to be very clear in those terms of service what he means by that because the problem is that those words don't really mean much anymore you know you can be accused of homophobia or racism when you've never said or done anything homophobic or racist so again, I don't trust those people. I don't trust those people in Silicon Valley to make those decisions. The safest way to approach it is to say anyone can say what they want and the user gets to decide what they see and what they don't. And that's, that's what I would do. Great. Um, well, uh, hopefully if he struggles, um, he'll, uh, he'll come to you for advice. <laughs> um, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, Titania McGrath. Mm -hmm. uh, did I pronounce it right? Titania, yeah. because Titania. this is how I came across uh, you originally, okay. um, and actually I got pretty triggered when I first read her because I'm sorry. Yeah, I was. I I saw the tweets and it, I got pretty enraged that, about these sort of moronic, ultra progressive uh, uh, tweets, and uh, it took me a minute to work out it was a 
It was a joke. Yes. But it's been kind of a, a miracle. It's huge. And um, uh, I, what's that journey been? How did it start? Uh, it started because I was uh, frustrated uh, that there didn't appear to be many comedians uh, going after this new, very intolerant, very upper middle class movement of people who want to speak on behalf of minorities in this really patronizing way and this just fundamentally illiberal worldview. And, you know, I'm a liberal and I, I wanted to mock it, you know, and so... I did it really for myself. I didn't expect it to go anywhere. I, I, I created a, uh, an account. I wanted her to be a slam poet. I had this idea that she wrote really terrible self-righteous poetry, which I always enjoyed writing. So I did that. And then um, it just escalated. And I don't know why, really. I, um, I think it's just, uh, you know, there was an appetite for it, I guess. Uh, and then she got banned. And the ban was what really kicked it when off. When was that? <sighs> Do you know what? It was pretty early on. It was about six months after I'd created the character. And what was she banned for? It was a tweet about a UKIP rally. I can't remember the... It was about punching them. It, basically, she put a photograph of a UKIP rally. She said, I'm going off to this UKIP rally to punch people in the name of tolerance or something like that. I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was a complete ban. And I think it was because they thought it was inciting... But whatever, I don't know what it was. But, that got, but then when... Because at that point, she had enough high-profile followers who were made a bit of a fuss about it. So they reinstated her a day later. On the grounds of satire? On the grounds of satire, presumably. They didn't tell me why. They don't tell you why. But they... Um, and but So she'd been banned for basically 24 hours, even though they emailed me saying it was permanent. They reversed the decision. Huh. And then she wrote an article for Quillette about her 24-hour ban. It was called, Now I Know How Nelson Mandela Felt. <laughs> And, you know, and so it was like she used that as currency and then it became more. And I think I got like 30,000 followers that day after she came back because it's that the Streisand effect, isn't it? It's when you try and ban something and it's just sort of gone on since then, really. And you still have now pushback with it. Do you have people complaining about it or uh, are you winding up people liberals like me or are you is it does it piss off the progressives? Well, this is that it's it's ridiculous. This is what I don't understand over the past few days because lately because, you know, I've written the two books, I've done the live show. I've got other things on my plate, so I don't tweet as often as I used to. But then for the last week I have been, I've just been tweeting every day, just, I don't know why, just because I felt like it. And what's so shocking is so many people still fall for it. Hmm. So there's a lot of people who don't know who she is and they they get very angry and there've been lots of angry responses about a couple of tweets she's done over the last week. I mean, really, really furious. Uh, And that's, that's been quite funny, you know? (laughs) I mean, this is, that's the mischievous element in me. But, you know, it's got, but the fact that people do, think it's real even now suggests that there is a problem with that movement you know because you can say the most absurd possible thing and it will come true and what's next for her don't know really i mean i've uh we did have the live show which i'd love to tour might tour it we had a tour booked in for the, but then the pandemic hit um and then um i might like to develop a in some other way, televisually perhaps, or something like that. I've I've uh, put together a few ideas along that line. But, you know, it's very difficult, I think, for something that satirises this movement to get anywhere, insofar as the, a lot of the gatekeepers of the industry wouldn't be happy about that. So I don't think it necessarily... Well, you have to kind of do it yourself, which is what I've been doing. You yeah. Um, You've been doing that at Comedy Unleashed, uh, yeah. your... your comedy um club in east london at which you've called the home of free thinking comedy yeah. which implies that free thinking comedy doesn't exist elsewhere or it or i mean it does why does it need it, to be stated it does exist isn't all comedy free thinking it, no 
I mean, it it does exist. It's just not the norm in the comedy industry. The, the comedy, weirdly, the comedy industry is one of the most subject to groupthink that I'm familiar with. I mean, I know groupthink tends to infect every walk of life to a degree, mm. but the the sheer level of conformity among comedians is quite a surpri- has been a surprise to me. Mm. Uh, the way in which there is a, a very narrow Overton window of acceptable opinions on the comedy circuit, and the fact that comedians te- seem to be, you know, they're meant to be the disruptors in society. They're meant to be the ones who think outside the box, but they all think the same and they all have the same accepted creed and accepted scripts. I'm not all of them, obviously. Um, Is that true? I mean, if you look to the biggest comedians, let's say uh, in the States at the moment, you've got Rogan, Chappelle, South Park still uh, huge and family. You couldn't possibly call them woke or progressive. No, you couldn't. Or maybe progressive, but but they're 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 huge and they're very much disrupting uh, the the yeah, yeah. groupthink. Or uh, or are you referring to sort of lower level comedians in the UK? No, what? I think I'm referring to the UK. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised when I was in LA and I went to the comedy store there and the I saw many many comedians I'd never heard of doing stuff that you just wouldn't see on the circuit in the UK. It seemed quite normal there. Um, and it, 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 there is a, just a different sense about it here. I mean, I've experienced this firsthand over here because I used to run a stand-up course for young comics between the ages of 20 and 26, and I did that for about seven years, and it was on Saturday afternoons, and it, I did three terms a year, so it was like 10-week terms. And, you know, I met many years ago when I started doing that, it was for a theatre in central London, you know, the, 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 the comics I was working with, they were really interesting. They were doing all sorts of stuff, subversive stuff and, and really talented. And, and then each, as each term went by and each year went by, there was a, a more sense in which they were starting to police each other. These young comics sort of saying, yeah, that's really problematic what you're saying there. You shouldn't mm. do that. You can't talk about that because you're white or you're straight or whatever. And, and this, it got worse. And so every term we ended up having these debates about this stuff. And I was like, this shouldn't be coming from comedians. Mm. There was even one comic who said that she would go to clubs and go up to the comedians afterwards and tell them which jokes they shouldn't have told, right? And this was... Dead. So in other words, you get this situation where young comics are policing each other, you know, egged on by people like The Guardian and people like that who think that the job of the comedian is to reiterate voguish trends. Um, and so it was weird seeing that. And then of, and then they wouldn't rehire me because one of the um, uh, members said they were felt unsafe because of a Titania tweet. This was in the early days of Titania. Uh, and they said because of that, I couldn't come back anyway. But, I, but by that point, I, I, I probably was quite glad to be free of it. I was sort of doing it out of loyalty at that point. But but I do think... So was Comedy Unleashed done started out of necessity because you weren't you could no longer perform at those other places? Or No, I mean, I, I, I look, there are a number of clubs have you, now... Have you felt other places where you felt pushback because of your... Yeah, there are places that won't book me anymore. Uh, and that's fine because I'm not... I'm not so much interested in doing the club circuit anymore. You know, I mean, I I, I did a tour, a, a solo show tour just before the pandemic. That was the last time I've done any sort of major stand-up. I did the Edinburgh Fringe that year as well. But really, um, I, I like doing the occasional gig at Comedy Unleashed or like I did the opening spot for Titania. Yeah, and that, you, know, that, yeah. you know, I'll do that. But I'm not, you know, I, I'm not really that bothered about going, going back to clubs too much. But um, yeah, and a number of the comedians who i know who i do consider really free thinking and subversive they don't get booked in in some of these clubs i mean mary burke is a comic who had her gig cancelled in brighton because 
someone complained to the venue said uh, i've seen some of her material online it makes me feel unsafe and then they just they just scuppered the gig um you know that is becoming more normal so what's so, the, what does that mean for British comedy then? Is, is well, it, no, I think things are slightly changing. I think I think um, people are getting bored with the style of comedy where someone just basically reads out a Guardian opinion piece. <laughs> uh, I think that's becoming it, it's just very establishment, very boring, and and I think um, ultimately that's why Comedy Unleashed works so well because the audience are comedy literate. They're they're an audience that come back again and again. They don't expect not to hear things that you know that. They, 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 they expect that someone might say something that pushes their buttons a little bit. Hmm. You're not going to get a member of that audience come up and say, I was offended and therefore you shouldn't book that comic again because we just tell them where to go and they know that. But also they, they just know not to expect that. They know that comedy isn't a safe space in that way. Um, you know, and again, like I'm not saying there aren't other brilliant clubs, you know. We're, we're a club like any other. It's just that the only real difference is that you know people do the, the same club sets they do at our night as they do at other nights it's just that sometimes a comedian will say to me i really want to try something that i can't do at other clubs and we'll say okay do it that's the only really di- real difference that occasionally we get someone trying something out that for whatever reason they feel they can't do elsewhere um and you know maybe that perception's false maybe you can do it anywhere but the perception exists and and it's certainly the case that a lot of comedians self-censor with a view to getting on in the industry and we just encourage people to say whatever you want and you know you you can do what you want and it's it's going to be fine and if it if it doesn't work so what yeah yeah you know what's your um uh, i actually didn't know until meeting you that you were involved with Jonathan Pye in the early days yeah and and that's a very political um uh, uh project and and i would say that i wouldn't say you're well, I guess your stand-up's mildly political and certainly can cultural. Be, yeah. Can be. And uh, uh, what's your? Um, are you fond of that? Of that your work there, Jonathan Pye, and 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 what what was that experience for you? Well, I wrote uh, the character, co-wrote the character with Tom, who created the character for three years, for the first three years of the of the roughly around that. Um, and I just find that I get, you know, I I have to move on to other things. Um, I think I'm s- proud of some of the videos we did, uh, some less so. It's like anything else, really. I think I think um, it it was very political, though. It was very because uh, my stand up at that point wasn't all that political. But then, of course, Brexit happened. So you know, and and actually, it was really helpful because I was writing a lot about politics, and that did end up informing my stand up actually at the time. Um, so that was quite interesting. Um, and I always like writing scripts for other people. I like writing for characters. Were you writing comedy first or politics first? Comedy, yeah. Okay. And yeah. so when did when did you sort of get excited or or when did your interest in politics develop? Well, I start. Uh, well, I mean, I've always been interested in politics, um, but I started writing for Spiked magazine um, on a regular basis, and that was it. Was Tom Slater, who's now the editor of Spiked, who was then deputy editor, who persuaded me to do that, and uh, that was great. I think just writing about politics consolidated my ideas about politics and actually got me to change my mind about so it's in the act of having to articulate your views that you end up seeing the flaws in them um and so that was really good for me to do that and i think uh now it's sort of second nature to me but only because i i did that i think yeah um so i understand that you are about to publish another book is well, I, well, what can you tell us about that? Uh, it's a book. It's called The New Puritans. Um, it's how the religion of social justice captured the Western world. That's the subtitle. It is um, going to be out in September. It is finished. Um, 
and it's sort of ready to go. The, the problem with it was, I mean, I've been revising it over the last four or five months. And the problem is that every day there's stuff I could add. Like every day there's a new news story, there's a new development, all the rest of it. And it, and so it's quite a relief at this point now. It's it's cut off now. I'm not going to add any more. All sorts of things might change between now and September. You know how quickly this stuff moves. But the broad, the broad idea of the book is to talk about this new religion. And I do perceive it to be a religion. And to draw... Uh, to try and I wanted to create an accessible way for people to understand how it works because I don't think people do I think people are put off by the language so much of this culture war if you like is a battle of language it's about ideologues who change definitions of words whilst denying that they are changing the definitions of words there's a lot of institutional gaslighting going on you know Uh, and and they want it to seem impenetrable impenetrable because of the language they use and, and the, the, you know, the, the, the esoteric terminology, toxic masculinity, heteronormativity, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And so I wanted to find a way to make it accessible, make it under, uh, comprehensible, and also to talk about how we can push back against it. And that's what the book is about, really. Um, and I've drawn a lot of comparisons. I mean, the book opens talking about what happened in Salem, Massachusetts during the witch trials, because I see so many parallels between you know, because this, I call them the new Puritans, but really they're not anything like the Puritans of old. Insofar as for one thing, the Puritans of uh, the, the Puritan colonists of America had a complete understanding of their own unworthiness before God. They were constantly doubting themselves. They didn't know if they were the elect or the damned. The the, the Puritans of today, the new Puritans, as they call them, uh, they are, they, they never doubt their own certainty. They think they're right and they cannot be shaken from that. They, you know, so they're very different beasts. But what I do think is comparable is the way in which a climate of mistrust and fear can generate and uh, the promotion of lies, the promotion of a fantasy reality uh, and leads to terrible consequences. In Salem, it's the girls claiming that they were seeing spirits and devils and they were possessed. They were seeing witches um, and people got killed. 20 people lost their lives because of that um and it was only when um enough people spoke out and said there are no witches you this isn't this isn't true that it stopped and i see a, a parallel with today is that you know everyone knows that there are two sexes everyone knows uh that um the idea well, all sorts of ideological positions that are promoted such as critical race theory a gender identity ideology, um, this pushback against free speech. Everyone, everyone, mis- most people mistrust that kind of thing. We know the difference between truth and illusion, but we're being, we're being asked to buy into the illusion on a on a grand scale. And I think when sufficient numbers speak out, it will stop. You know, we look at what happens with J.K. Rowling. Everyone's terrified because they see how much they pile into her and attack her and call her a witch. And, and so people don't speak out, and that's all it is. Isn't it... So there's a sort of... Uh, element of hope in what you're saying because yeah. you're saying if we get a critical mass of people to speak out then enough of this nonsense but that presupposes that actually most people agree with what you're saying well they but do don't they i mean i'm <laughs> not convinced of that but the worlds i've come from let's say the music industry yeah it would it's majority progressive and uh, i used to live in new york vast majority progressive i'm not conv- and then if you look at also how popular these politicians are on the on the left yeah with you know they have millions of 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 likes and, and uh, on their tweets and, and and stuff like this if that's a measure of their popularity but also they are let's say in the states yeah they they they're getting power or, or you know political power so it's it's not, i'm not convinced that the um 
that there is a critical mass to get because it it seems to me to be more split, almost 50-50. You could be right. I mean, the, the, the data would seem to suggest not insofar as, you know, more in common did a survey. They estimate that uh, 13% of the UK would fit into that critical social justice progressive bracket. Is that right? Wow. Which means as well that they are a minority in every generation. So huh. this sort of myth that what this is, is that the older generation are struggling to come to terms with change isn't borne out by the stats because actually the majority of young people would be on my side in this fight. But, but, it, but it's about what, what are the, it's, it goes back to the Overton window. What are, what are the acceptable words to say? What are the acceptable opinions to hold? Um, I, I have no doubt that a lot of the people you're describing who are the cheerleaders for this ideological movement, they are doing so partly because they know that that is the way that they can progress in their career. They're not going to have their reputations threatened. They're not going to lose their jobs, all the rest of it. It's a self-preservation thing. Partly, it's uh, partly, but that I, I think I haven't come across so many people that do it. Let in, let's say, the music industry where yeah. my background is. I think that people really believe. No, it. I think they believe it too. Yeah, and oh, I, I, I don't I, think it's insincere when they're. No, 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 I don't. I, I was going on to say. I think. I think partly it's self-preservation. I mean, because the, the kind of people I get messages on all the time from people within the common industry saying things like, "I'm glad you're saying the things I can't say." Yeah, yeah I get so, that. As well. so, right. yeah. so those would be the sorts I'm describing here. The ones who are for reasons of self-preservation, parroting the accepted creed, right? So there's a contingent there. I think I'm with you, though. I think most of the people who parrot this stuff do sincerely believe it, you know, because it's, they've been ideologically captured. And they, I think it is sincere. I, and I think it's well-intentioned largely as well. But I don't think they represent the majority. I don't think there's evidence of that. Uh, I think they seem more prevalent than they are because of the amplification effect of social media. And, that, and certainly you and I come from the creative arts where they do predominate so mm. we have a skewed view of this we we think this is now everywhere Ma- the majority of people you can talk to on the street won't have a clue what these people are talking about mm. and they would think it's nonsense so that's that's it, it's the elites again it's 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 when elites have cap- have um, been captured and that's why i go back to salem because none of that would have happened if it weren't for the magistrates the people in power uh, the clergymen saying we believe in these girls and their visions you know and that's that's why i think it's important although it's it's interesting to me that there's one case when when this hysteria spread to the neighboring towns and it went to andover and the girls did their usual thing and they 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 cried out witchery on a a local dignitary and he said okay uh i'm gonna sue you for defamation and then they stopped straight away so there were exact so even at the time there were examples of people in authority knowing it wasn't true. Hmm. Whenever the girls accused, say the priest's wife, Hale's wife, Reverend Hale's wife was accused, the magistrates would say, no, you've made a mistake, right? Which means they don't really believe it. And that's quite interesting to me. So you've got the, the, the elites of our time. That's why I think that these are the best way to see the high priests of critical social justice is they are the clergy of our time, the elite clergy. Yeah. Uh, and it's that combination of what you've described, sincere ideological capture or self-preservation, parroting the words that you're meant to say. I think it's a combination of both. Yeah. Um, and I th- therefore I am hopeful, yeah. Maybe, I mean, maybe you're more pessimistic than I am, but I, I vacillate on that sometimes. I'm, but, you know, it's the same with writing the free speech book. I'm, I, I'd say at the end of the book, maybe if I'm lucky enough to reach old age at that point, there will just be a very tight limit on the words you can say and 
Maybe books will have had lots of their old books stripped out and burnt. Maybe that will be the case. Mm. But at least I can say, well, I tried. And that's all I can say. Well, actually, I get my hope from people like you who have the courage to speak out and defend these liberal values like you do. And uh, and I've said this uh, before the interview started, you do it in a very gracious way. I don't see you doing any ad hominem. I don't see you attacking people. You do it in a very nice way, an honest way. And and uh, and if only more people uh, who believe in free speech and liberal values had this, the same approach as you, I think would actually... Uh, I don't think the ad hominem thing is helpful. I don't think saying, you know, just throwing mud instead of engaging in arguments is helpful. I think the one exception is if someone's online and they're just sending abuse my way, I might, I treat it like a heckle and then I go into comedy mode and I might do, and you could argue that that's ad hominem, but I will never, I will never, I will never try and falsely ascribe a motivation to a political opponent just on the basis that I suspect they think that. I will always take people at face value and and assume what they, that they are being truthful in what they argue. Um, and I will, um, never just throw insults at someone because I disagree with them. I don't see the point. Mm. I think it's self-defeating. It is. You've lost the... As soon as you someone uses ad hominem against me, I, I kind of disengage because they've you already lost disengage. the argument. Exactly. Because they can't play the ball, they play the man instead. And it's like, okay, well... Yeah, then. when people do that to me, I just block them. I do. I, I, I don't have any You're interest. a blocker. Oh, totally a blocker. Love it. <laughs> yeah. No, but, you know, within this whole cultural nonsense, you have to engage with those who are able and capable of adult engagement. Mm. what's the point in arguing with a toddler there's no point um so but you don't doesn't mean you have to block them you can just ignore them no because if you don't block them they will mass report you and and you open yourself up to that vulnerability oh yeah i've been there uh yeah so just you know there's no point like so you we all make decisions about who we can productively engage with Mm. you know i can productively engage with someone who has i don't know reservations about immigration or who believes that um, uh, we don't need women's only spaces or what, you know, if they're coming from it from us, if they're willing to have a discussion in an adult way, I can have that discussion, no matter how sensitive or difficult the topic might be. But if someone's screaming and tearing their hair out and calling you an evil bigot fascist, (laughs) I'm not going to talk to that. What's the point? Yeah. You're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to persuade them. Um, You're just going to frustrate yourself. They're like vampires on social media, sucking the life out of you. So just... Just block them. Just block them. Yeah. Andrew Doyle, thank you so much for your time. And it's been wonderful chatting to you. And I'm sure uh, listeners will have found that fascinating. Thank you. Thanks very much.